Welcome to Ariel Talk Time, hosted by business intuitive, entrepreneur, and founder of Ariel, Victoria Lynn Weston. Listen to her thought-provoking interviews with inspiring leaders, creators, and intuitive thinkers who share their stories and lifestyle tips to enhance your way of living. And we're inviting you to join our conversation. If you like this interview, please post a review on iTunes or Stitcher. Hello, everyone. It's Victoria. Thank you for tuning in today. If you're curious and love to know more about how we communicate beyond the five senses, well, you're in for a real treat today. Before I introduce my guest, I want to talk to you a little bit about voice, hands-free, voice-activated devices such as Amazon Alexa devices. Are you an entrepreneur, business person, or lifestyle coach? Are you looking to expand your brand, gain recognition, and attract new clients? Have you considered some of the newest platforms such as Amazon Echo devices and Alexa skill? Where to start? If you've got a book, consider making it interactive. If you have a podcast, consider streaming it on Amazon Echo devices. Or perhaps you just simply have a business message. And I predict Amazon Echo Alexa skills will replace those boring email newsletters. You now can do what they call Alexa news flashes. But where do you start? Studio Carlton develops customized Alexa skills, and it won't cost you thousands of dollars. I suggest get with the future. It's here and have Studio Carlton create your own custom Alexa skills. Visit StudioCarlton.com. Today's guest is the number one remote viewer in the United States and probably the world. His name is Joseph McMonagall. He joined the U.S. Army and was recruited by the Army Security Agency for classified assignments. As a result of some of his own unusual events in his life, a near-death experience, a UFO sighting, and numerous out-of-body episodes, he became aware of his intuitive abilities and developed the skill of remote viewing. He later became one of the original intelligence officers recruited for the top-secret Army program, now known as Stargate. Following his retirement from the Army, he maintained his association with Stargate program through his own company, Intuitive Intelligence Applications, and working as a remote viewing consultant to the Cognitive Sciences Laboratories at SRI International and Science Applications until the programs closed in November of 1995. My interview was done a few years ago. It was part of, it's the long interview from what was the PBS featured documentary, The Intuitive Factor, Genius or Chance. But in a day where we're all looking about remote viewing and what it can actually tell us and what kind of hints and direct us, I think you'll find the interview fascinating. So next, let's go and find our inspiration of the day with Joseph McMonigo, the country's top remote viewer. Yes, it's true. We have all experienced intuitive flashes. And then there are those who have developed this ability to a much more reliable degree. I'd like to introduce one of the finest, most respected remote viewers in the country, perhaps even in the world. Joseph McMonigo won the Legion of Merit Award from the military for providing critical intelligence reported at the highest echelon of our military and government, including the Joint Chiefs of Staff, the DIA, CIA, and the Secret Service for providing crucial and vital intelligence unavailable by any other source. He was recruited for a top-secret military program that later became known as Operation Stargate. 
to develop and apply remote viewing skills for national security purposes. For more than 20 years, Joseph honed his psychic abilities and refined the scientific protocols that resulted in the most reliable method of information retrieved. During this interview, Joseph describes his remote viewing experiences and its limitations. And now I'd like to introduce Joseph McMonagall. Joseph, what is the definition of remote viewing? Is it the same as someone with psychic ability? Uh, remote viewing is a little bit different from psychic functioning in that it is always done under controls. And the, the, the controls are designed in, they're designed in a way to permit someone to obtain and describe uh, information pertinent about a target. And the target can be a place or an event object, something in time-space that's remote from the remote viewer. When did you first become aware of being able to demonstrate remote viewing abilities? The actual first time that I became aware of my own capabilities was when I was taken out to SRI International in 1978 and exposed to a remote viewing uh, experiment. Uh, I was recruited in, 19, in October of 1978 for the uh, then top secret project that the Army was uh, putting together for using remote viewing and intelligence collection. How and why, Joseph, did the Army come to select you as a remote viewer, specifically with your contribution on Operation Stargate? Uh, what, what the Army did is the Army went, decided that the kinds of people that they would have to interview would would have to be people who essentially they felt were already operating in a psychic sense. They had done a study at uh, the Army Training and Development Command where they had looked at people who were essentially survivors from uh, difficult types of jobs. Uh, they were people that, that seemed to survive no matter what happened. And they they studied these people and they came to a conclusion that uh, these people were all pretty much the same uh, but had variant backgrounds so the only commonality they could find was the probability that they were psychic so they decided that what they would do is go through the the roles of the intelligence community and pick out people who were highly confident, uh, innovative, who seem to be very successful at their jobs, and who seem to be the survivor kind of people. And they would interview those people. And essentially they went through and interviewed something like 2,000 officers in the Fort Meade, Washington, D.C. area. And I happened to be one of them. Uh, the fallout from that, those interview, or that interview process was selection of about 24 people who were then brought into a conference room and told about remote viewing after they were they were enlightened as to what remote viewing was they they were allowed to talk about it for about an hour and then they said everybody who wasn't interested or who did not want to participate should leave at which time about 14 people walked out the uh, remaining group of us there were 10 or 11 of us, I guess, were then subjected to a further interview by the scientists from SRI, and they determined which six of the remaining few would be taken out to SRI and tested. Uh, 
I was taking SRI and run through a series of six remote viewings and uh, had five for six first place matches, which were the best that you could do. So, I'm really fascinated with remote viewing, Joseph. Can you share your remote viewing experiences with us? Sure. At, at that time, the way they were running their remote viewing checks is they would uh, they would use an outbounder as a target person. That that was a person that would actually get in a car and drive to a randomly selected target site. I would be shown the the photograph of that individual and then asked to describe where where they were actually standing. In the case as an example of my first target. The, I had an impression that the person was standing in front of a unique kind of building with a tower, and it had some interesting shadows in the front. And I essentially drew a picture of this building. And in my own opinion at the time, I thought I was inventing it. But after the uh, end of the remote viewing session, the outbounder returned and then took me physically to the actual randomly selected target. And it turned out to be the uh, art Museum of Stanford University, and uh, my drawing was a near-perfect representation of that building. Where was the location? Was it miles away? That was about three miles from the actual lab. I was told, the only thing I was told ahead of time was that they had a pool of about 200 targets, and these were locations that had been randomly selected throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. So the target area was about 30 by 70 miles, and they could go to any location within that area. What is another example of remote viewing? Oh, another example, uh, one, of the, one of the outbounder uh, targets uh, randomly selected a, what was essentially a, a restaurant sitting on a yacht basin. It was on the San Francisco Bay, and what I drew drew essentially was a restaurant sitting on the bay next to a yacht basin and I said it was a very large parking lot in front and uh, that's exactly the way it looked. What compelled the Army, specifically the CIA and the DIA, to invest 20 million dollars in a 20-year project that spanned from the 1970s to the mid-1990s in remote viewing experiments? Uh, actually, it wasn't experiments. Uh, the reason for investing the money in the first place or, or attempting to do what they did, actually it started out as a three-year project. We were supposed to train for a year, uh, you know, go through a selection process, select the people, train them for a year, then do actual uh, simulated mission uh, intelligence collection, and then do a year of evaluation to determine whether or not it would be of value. The problem was, in the middle of our training, uh, our training time, the Iran hostage uh, situation developed, and of course they had no way of targeting the inside of the compound once the, the compound had been taken over by uh, the Iranians. So we were brought in, and it turned out that our uh, the information that we were providing turned out to be extremely accurate. And so we started getting a whole lot of tasking from a lot of different agencies for uh, very difficult target scenarios that couldn't be answered in any other way. Did the project last 20 years by accident, or were the results so significant that they kept the program in place until it was halted by the CIA in the mid-90s? Well, 
the thing, yeah, the thing that you have to remember, there's two things you have to remember. One is uh, collecting intelligence information with remote viewing is, is very much like uh, applying alternative medicine to a healing problem. When we got the actual targets or the problems to work on, they were essentially dead in the water. Uh, it's sort of sort of like the person who walks into the alternative healer has essentially been uh, declared terminal by medical science. So they have no alternative but to go to a, uh, an alternative healer. In our case, we would get missions that no one else could solve that were essentially dead in the water. And we would then provide uh, guidance for additional techniques to be applied or give them new leads that they could follow to solve their problems. And uh, the fact that we were successful about 50% of the time is, uh, is really a, a significant result. What was the significant piece of information that you retrieved? Well, 99% of what we did is still classified. But I can, I can talk about one case that's been exposed publicly. Uh, that involves the, uh, the Typhoon submarine. The Russians were building a new submarine in a very large building that no one could gain access to in, in the north, northern area of the Soviet Union. And uh, we were asked to target the building and tell them what was going on inside. Essentially what I did is produced uh, some cutaway drawings of a very large submarine with a large flat uh, deck on the rear. And I talked about uh, candid missile tubes and that sort of thing. It obviously was a submarine that no one had ever seen before. They uh, didn't exactly accept what we were saying was going on. So I gave them, and, and one of the other viewers gave them, a projected uh, date for when they would launch this new submarine, which is, we said was about 110 days in the future. In fact, uh, they did launch it 104 days in the future, and they were able to target the, uh, the building and the, the launch facility uh, with overhead and collect pictures of the new Typhoon-class submarine. So uh, you could consider that, that a coup from an intelligence standpoint. They probably saved 10 times more money than we spent in 20 years. Is that right? Yes. Probably saved $100 million. That's incredible. Joseph, how do you prepare for remote viewing? especially when you were in the Army. Did the superior simply walk in and, and give you an assignment and you had to come up with impressions in, in five minutes? Or did you have an hour or did you have a day to prepare for these experiments? Well, no one really knew what uh, doing remote viewing entailed. And so we were all pretty much left up to our own devices. The specific techniques that I used were meditation techniques, uh, mostly Zen-type meditation. I would uh, try to develop a place in my mind which was very much like a place of no thought or a place where I would not be thinking of anything, sort of like balancing on a fence. Uh, I tried to, to replicate that particular place in a meditative standpoint so that I could recognize it at will. And then once in that, that state, I would ask that they provide me with a target. 
And then you would simply write your impressions down in a journal? Well, initially, uh, it, it was a sense of uh, just being very inventive because we were kind of, you know, it was kind of difficult telling exactly what it was we were doing. Later, I came to realize that there was a very, uh, a very small shadow of difference between being inventive and uh, the actual reception of uh, the information. The information, when it's received, comes in in a very quick manner, and it's usually very uh, shattered or piecemeal, and it takes uh, some considerable amount of processing to try to make something uh, coherent out of it. That's very interesting. I know this is still classified, but can you share anything about the remote viewings that went on that involved Noriega? Well, I I can't comment directly to any specific mission, but I can comment on the degree of accuracy. And I can say that while it wasn't always consistent, uh, we were very capable of producing very detailed floor plans of buildings or houses. Uh, that we could describe in detail the furniture and the furnishings within that those areas, and that uh, we could even describe the, uh, the color, texture, uh, and in some cases the kinds of artwork on the walls, and locate things within the room, which would include people, uh, listening devices, electronic equipment, uh, that sort of thing. Well, let's examine a sole remote viewing experience. I mean, what do you do with the details, and how do you know it's accurate? Does the Army go and immediately check out the site to find out how many details you might come up with that were, in fact, accurate? Or do they just assume that you are going to be accurate, and then they simply base a decision on that? Well, there's a number of ways of determining, uh, hypothetically, what the accuracy is ahead of time. For instance, if you know exactly what the outside of a target building looks like and the remote viewer doesn't, then if you're interested on some, about something in the inside, you let the remote viewer describe the outside first. If it appears that they're describing the outside with some detail, then you can assume that whatever they then say about the inside is probably equally correct. You take the material that they might say about the inside and it might suggest a, another targeting mechanism that, or another methodology of collecting intelligence that can then be used that's more effective. Very interesting. Well, it, it was never meant to stand alone, as no intelligence information is ever meant to stand alone. You know, when even overhead photographs can be staged, so... Uh, when you have something implied by one collection method, you always apply a number of other collection methods to verify it. When you first began to experience remote viewing, how long did it take you to become confident and to trust your visual impressions? Uh, it, to, to actually remote view, I, I can tell you that almost every person, every human being that's ever walked into our lab or walk into our facility that's been tested in remote viewing, display some capacity for it. So everybody's psychic. In terms of developing the ability to do world-class, what I would call world-class remote viewing, or very detailed remote viewing, actually took me about three years. And you have to understand that that 
three years of efforting was uh, anywhere from eight to 12 hours a day, uh, five or six days a week for three solid years. Tell me about spontaneous remote viewing as opposed to remote viewing where you might be focused on a particular location. Well, you really couldn't you really couldn't say there is a such thing as uh, spontaneous remote viewing. You can say that someone can be spontaneously psychic, but the very word spontaneous means outside of controls or at any time. So, uh, what differentiates remote viewing from normal psychic functioning or spontaneous psychic functioning is the fact that it's always applied or done with, within very strict controls that that uh, essentially guarantee that the information is delivered in a psychic way. As a psychic, Joseph, I've had my own sort of remote viewings, if you will, but I call them clairvoyant. I've also had out-of-body experiences. But for those people that don't know anything about remote viewing and out-of-body experiences, can you define and explain the difference? Uh, arriving at a target location in an out-of-body state, uh, there's some significant differences between that and remote viewing. Uh, one is you know that your body is somewhere else and that you are consciously and fully at the location that you're seeking. Uh, your perceptions are always sense-based. In other words, what you can see, hear, taste, smell, or, or otherwise sense with your normal senses are available to you in the antibody state. Everything is pristinely clear. Uh, you can see molecular movement almost in inanimate, inanimate objects. The problem is you can't see into things, you can't see through things. In order to do so, you have to pass through the wall or, or push your out-of-body face down through the top of a desk to see what's in a drawer, that sort of thing. Uh, it's also impossible to report as you're doing it, so you're pretty much stuck with remembering what it is you saw. In a remote viewing sense, what happens is you just disassociate mentally from where you're located and associate mentally with the target, uh, you receive what I call a thought ball, a very, very quick uh, taste of the target, which can contain an enormous amount of information, which you then have to dissect and digest and, and sort of uh, make or turn into a, a more cognitive fashion information that's understandable. It's very difficult. The access is a lot greater with remote viewing than, believe it or not, than the out-of-the-body vision. I was fascinated to discover that you attended an all-boy Catholic school in Miami, Florida. That's correct. Uh, taught by the Brothers of the Holy Cross, and, and uh, they had some lay teachers, but uh, it was an all-Catholic boys' school. A lot of people think that if you're psychic, that you may not be quite so connected on the religious and spiritual side of life. Um, how do you feel as being a remote viewer, Joseph? Did this enhance or deflect from your own religious Catholic upbringing? It, I, I would say on the contrary. It, it enhances the, the spiritual nature of the person involved. Uh, I have a much greater understanding as an example for what free will means and commitment to a creator. I understand what, uh, what proactive, uh, what being proactive means in, in life and living 
and how that helps to construct the future and the responsibilities inherent in that. So I would say it, it helps someone to become a lot more spiritual. I agree with that. The people that are in tune are generally more sensitive and a lot of times more in tune with their own spiritual side. Now then, tell me how long you were in the military and what was the first job you had? Uh, I was in the Army for 20 years. I retired in 1984. I was uh, an intelligence officer for many of those years. I was an intelligence non-commissioned officer uh, for many of those years. I started out uh, in, and I was recruited actually for the Army Security Agency and spent uh, many years overseas, well over a decade overseas, going from the Far East to Europe and spent a lot of time at isolated border sites and, and that sort of thing. How are you generally treated by people from other cultures when you are introduced as a remote viewer? Actually, I'm treated better by foreign cultures than the American culture. And primarily, I think the reason for this is many of the foreign cultures, which are much older, uh, have more of a, uh, a bent or a sense of the, the paranormal as being part of our, you know, our normal human capacity. Uh, it's very, very much so with the, uh, what we're used, what we used to call the Eastern European countries versus the Western European. Uh, within the Far East, they've always had a very, uh, very clear understanding of the spiritual nature of man and, and the sort of limit, limitless capability that comes with that. You had a near-death experience, right? That's correct. In 1970 in Austria, I had a near-death experience. Tell us what happened. I uh, met, met my wife and a friend at a guest house in Austria. It was in uh, uh, the same town that Hitler was born in, Brunau. And I ordered a before-dinner drink and took a few sips and started feeling very badly and excused myself from the restaurant so I wouldn't be sick publicly. And when I got to the front door as I, I was leaving, uh, it was a pop and I found myself standing on Cobblestone Road outside in the rain and the rain was going through the palms of my hand and I couldn't understand that. I looked up and what I didn't know at the time is that I'd collapsed in the doorway, had gone into convulsions, uh, swallowed my tongue, which prevented me from breathing, and very soon after, my heart stopped. I watched him load my body in the car and knew then that I was either dead or dying and followed them to the hospital in Germany, in Passau, where they took me into an emergency room and I, I watched them cutting the clothing off my body. And At some point, I became very bored with that and uh, had a sense of falling backwards through a tunnel at some point, I hit something with what I felt was the back of my neck and turned to see what it was because it felt warm. And when I turned, I was enveloped by a white light, which uh, had a presence about it. And I had a sense that I was probably in the presence of a superior being. At the time, I thought it was God. Uh, I went, I covered my entire life bit by bit, you actually really do review your life, uh, at which point I was told that I couldn't die, I had to come back, and I tried to argue with the, the light to no avail, and it was a pop, and I sat up in bed, 
and uh, proceed to tell people about God and white lights and the fact that you can't die. I would imagine this had a tremendous impact on your spiritual side, and I'm sure you struggled a little bit from the military training that you had. Now tell me, did this happen before, this out-of-body experience, before you ever had a remote viewing experience? Yeah, that that actually, uh, when that happened, I was a, a hardcore intelligence person. Uh, the paranormal was the farthest thing from my life. Uh, I was very, very much into the Cold War, and uh, as a result of that experience, I started having spontaneous out-of-bodies, spontaneous knowings. Uh, I knew that I was... Uh, I could not cease to exist as a conscious entity, so I lost my fear of death completely. It uh, changed me completely. Uh, the difficulty was that at that time there was no information available that, that talked about near-death experiences. So in trying to discuss it with my friends and things uh, in the military, they thought that I was crazy. So I learned to act normal and keep it to myself. It's very difficult integrating it to my life. I can imagine. Can remote viewing be used for political or military means? Uh, you can, contrary to uh, a lot of the mythology surrounding remote viewing, uh, there's this, this sort of concept that unless you're a good person, you can't be paranormal or you can't be psychic. And that's not true. Anyone can, anyone with natural talent and training can probably do remote viewing, and it can be either for destructive or constructive purposes. So, yes, you can use it for the military, and you can use it for other things. Do you think remote viewing could be applied and utilized in corporate America? Oh, absolutely. Uh, one of the things that, one of the three things that I think is most important with regard to remote viewing is the use of remote viewing in industry. Uh, it's it's quite possible to go forward in time and, and collect information on machines that don't yet exist, bring that information back to the present, and actually build those machines. I think we should be doing that. Tell me about your more significant remote viewing targets. In your book, Mind Truck, you talk about the Great Pyramids, the assassination of President Kennedy, and life in the year 2000. Yeah, uh... Well, you know, important is to the individual what important is. Uh, some of the most important remote viewings that I've done, I, I feel are the ones that I've done in helping to locate missing children. Uh, that has a more profound effect on me than knowing how the Great Pyramid was built, as an example. Uh, there, are, there are very important remote viewings that I've done operationally that had uh, a significant effect on on stopping or preventing certain things from happening uh, that could have been very devastating or destructive to innocent people. So there certainly are, you know, many remote viewings that are that fall in that category. How do you think remote viewing works from an analytical point of view? Well, we we know that we know pretty much that it's probably not electromagnetic. Uh, remote viewing or the transfer of information through remote viewing probably in a sense uh, is has something to do with uh, uh, <clears throat> excuse me just a minute let me think about this <laughs> <coughs> uh, 
we think that it probably has more to do with uh, uh, physics uh, reason. I mean, we know that we transcend space-time with remote viewing. In other words, there's it's possible to violate time as well as distance or location. So quantum physics probably comes into play. Uh, we know that entropy, uh, which has to do with quantum physics, uh, has an impact on the amount and the degree of accuracy and the transfer of information. But we don't know exactly how it gets from point A to point B. Right now, we, su we, sus we suspect that the actual remote viewing is using uh, a part or portion of probably the primitive brain versus the, the modern area of the brain. So it's, it's probably an old or an ancient talent in that we're, we're genetically growing out of it by making a requirement for more information processing. That's certainly thought-provoking. What are the limitations to remote viewing? Uh, limitations to remote viewing, that, that's, that's a difficult thing to, a to answer. You could spend hours just talking about that. Probably the, lim the biggest limitations to remote viewing are the belief of the people that are participant to a remote viewing experiment. It, what actually gets the person to the target in the most accurate fashion is the intent or the expectation of the experimenters or the people that are using it. So having a clear understanding uh, for what, what you want and assuming that you're going to get it has a lot to do with the success, the success rate of remote viewing. Uh, one of the other things that really impacts on remote viewing has to do with the protocol. If you vary from the protocol, you introduce variables that are very destructive to the process. Do you continue to consult on a day-to-day -day basis as well? Right. I, I have a company called Intuitive Intelligence Applications, Inc., and I've been consulting using remote viewing for uh, both private as well as corporate enterprises since 1984. Uh, about half of what I do is in direct support of research, uh, research specifically within remote viewing as well as the paranormal. And I'm currently a research associate with the Cognitive Sciences Lab, which is the original lab that started remote viewing at SRI. Uh, I'm also a full-time professional member of the uh, Parapsychological Association. I have an interesting question. Regarding UFOs, and with all the interests surrounding UFOs, have you ever used your remote viewing abilities to target the Roswell site? Uh, with regard to UFOs, I first need to say that I'm absolutely positive that, uh, that UFOs exist. Now, having said that, I'm not clear on whether or not they're aliens or time travelers or interdimensional vehicles or what they are. I have been targeted uh, three times, very specifically on Roswell, the Roswell incident. And in all three cases, have provided what essentially is an extremely accurate description of Roswell and the target site, but no event. So. I have a lot of question about whether anything ever really happened at Roswell when people say say it did. Uh, I I am a lot more sure about an incident having occurred at uh, 
Socorro, uh, New Mexico, than Roswell. What happened there? I, I do think that there was probably a crashed vehicle, or at least a part or a portion of a crashed vehicle there. Uh, whether or not they were able to recover significant portions or parts of that vehicle is it's hard to tell, though. I do know that I think they got pieces. How do you feel remote viewing will fit into society domestically and globally in the future? And do you think that there's a possibility of teaching our high school students about remote viewing? I, you know, more so than more so than remote viewing. I I don't think we'll ever make remote viewing uh, functional at an everyday sort of everybody level, but it it will be used eventually. Uh, we will essentially seek seek out or search out people that uh, are very talented and train them in remote viewing, and they'll become consultants to business and research and that sort of thing. Um, mostly, I think that the idea of paranormal functioning or psychic functioning will become more accepted. I think it's already accepted to the degree that we now know that it's real and that it operates. Even the greatest skeptics of, uh, of remote viewing have now agreed that something is probably happening. What we need to do now is determine how that's happening so that it can be used by everyone. You have a new book coming out. Tell me about it. Uh, the new book that's coming out is called The Ultimate Time Machine. Uh, to, to sum it up in just a few sentences, it's, it's my perception that time is something that we've invented in order to understand where we're standing and what's going on around us and that the, uh, the past is, is subject to change based on when exactly you exist, uh, that the past is heavily affected by uh, politics, uh, theology, that sort of thing. You know, in other words, what you need to believe in now, uh, it's a very mobile concept, so the past is never truly accurate, it's an invention. We, the present doesn't really exist. Uh, because we're cognitive beings and we have to do processing of what's going on, our present, our perceived present, is really a, an inventive past that's the most recent past, and that the future doesn't exist at all uh, until, we, until we experience it, uh, thereby making ourselves pretty much the ultimate time machine. Well, with that in mind, Joseph, are you saying that your theory is similar to Einstein's theory of relativity, where the past, present, and future all lay in continuum in a single thread? Or are you saying the future doesn't really exist until we experience it, which then takes us back into the present? Well, it doesn't exist for us until we experience it. In other words, uh, past, present, and future are all constructs that occur within our mind. And, and since we all, uh, the only thing that we can actually know is what we personally experience or observe, uh, each, each of us lives locked pretty much in our own universe. Uh, we share a lot of detail about that with one another, but no two people actually understand or believe the same thing. So reality is sort of a, a soup that we, we share. In, in actuality, I think all physical things uh, that exist within time-space already do exist. In other words, 
everything that's ever going to happen in the future already is. And it's a question of uh, being there and observing it in order to make it part of reality as far as what we know. Another thing, Joseph, I'd like to mention that I applaud your work. You were awarded the Legion of Merit for providing critical information from remote viewings that you provided for the military. That's correct. Uh, I, I actually got the award for a number of things. One is uh, I was the only, the only viewer providing information for a little over a year and a half. During that period of time, I provided support to literally hundreds of very specific missions, and in at least 150 of those cases, provided information that was uh, considered of national interest, uh, was considered unobtainable from any other source, and was validated as correct. That's quite astounding. Yeah, it, it sort of flies in the face of of the statement that this doesn't work, doesn't it? Do you think the government will be contacting you anytime in the immediate future for remote viewings? Or do you prefer at this point not to be involved with the military? I Right now, my focus is uh, sharing it with the rest of humanity, and I, I just assume not be locked into that, that, uh, that sort of secret world where you can't share things. And, and I think, basically, I think a lot of people that, that truly understand the importance of this, I think that that had a lot to do with their decision not to uh, fund it or not pursue it within the government any longer. Uh, it, was, it was a way of getting it out to the people and forcing uh, researchers in the, in the open world to address it, and thereby make it available to everyone. Very good. Do you have any closing comments? Uh, yeah, I, there, there's a number of important things that remote viewing can be used for, and aside from the industrial area, which I already mentioned, the creativity area, there's two that are critically important. One is, uh, we, one of the things we do know about remote viewing is that uh, targets that, are, that have a nuclear, uh, that, that contain nuclear material, are more easily and more accurately targeted because of the entropy, uh, the differences in entropy between them and other targets. And so one of the things that remote viewing can be used for is nuclear nonproliferation. Uh, we can essentially reduce, as an example, reduce a, a search area for a tactical nuclear weapon by 80% in very little time uh, than other technologies technologies can be used to seek out those particular weapon systems. So nuclear nonproliferation is extremely important, and I think remote viewing needs to be pursued, or the research of remote viewing in, in that arena needs to be pursued. The, the other area, the third area, is uh, using remote viewing against uh, terrorist organizations. The, the way they operate makes them very difficult to track and, and to eliminate their, these terrorist organizations as, as problems. However, remote viewing can, can sometimes disrupt or upset their funding cycles or their funding trends and, and actually uh, destroy their locations and cells and seek out their materials. So those are two areas I think that are critically important. Thank you, Joseph, for your time, and thank you for sharing your experiences. 
Tune in next time as there's always something new to learn on Ariel Talk Time. If you're a professional lifestyle consultant looking to expand your brand, gain more recognition, or to be featured with an exceptional group of inspiring professionals, join Ariel. Visit ariel.com. 